Romans chapter 3 is where we are today. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. And in honor of the word of the king, would you please stand? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. The apostle Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let us pray again. Our Lord God, I thank you so much for your word, for it is by this word that all men might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn from their sin and be saved. And as we read here, the price that we owed for our sin debt, which was so great a measure that we couldn't pay, was paid for us on our behalf by Christ Jesus our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins, shedding his blood as an atoning sacrifice, so that by this act of atonement, our sins have been covered over, and we have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a great measure of love displayed on the cross for us, we read about this in the Word of God. It is the grace of God that has been given to us, as we talked about last week. It is by faith that we receive this, as we'll be considering today. It is Christ alone who has done this work, and this has all been to the glory of God. These five foundational principles that, uh, that the church is built upon, on this truth, on the truth of Christ Jesus, Christ said, I will build my church. And so let us as a church be firm and grounded upon these doctrines. And even when we come across big words that might be confusing to us, that we not dismiss them with a wave of the hand and think that we can't possibly understand or fathom what this could mean, it, which is true. We can't. We cannot understand the measure of love, uh, of love that was displayed by Christ on the cross. But we desire to know it because Christ has made us his own. And so we want to know the one whom has saved us. So lead us in your word and give us your spirit to understand these words. Convict us of our sin so that we might know and pursue the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated.
So we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago when we started in on our series of the five solas of the Reformation. We began with sola scriptura, by scripture alone, for it is only by the word of God that a man is saved. We see that even here in the book of Romans, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it is by the word of God that the gospel was declared to us. We heard it and turned from sin and believed and so we were saved. So that was our first doctrine that we looked at over the course of this series, Sola Scriptura. The second one, which we looked at last week, was grace. Grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then the second part of that is what we're looking at today. By grace you have been saved through faith, through faith alone which is the doctrine that we will be considering today. So when we started two weeks ago, I told you about Martin Luther, who on October 31st of 1517, walked to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed to the door his 95 theses. He was not trying to start a reformation. That was not his intention. He had some concerns with what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, which he believed to be heresy. Selling indulgences, people had to buy their forgiveness. This is not what the Word of God says. Luther knew that faith alone came from the Word of God. And so he nailed these 95 theses to the door of the church to start a discussion. That's what he wanted. He just wanted to talk about these things. He had mailed his 95 theses to several leaders of the church. But he was not expecting the firestorm that this would cause. Within a matter of months to even a few years, his 95 theses had been written in every language in Europe. And the whole people were considering the things, the concerns that Luther had brought up about what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. So this happened in 1517. And then over the next several years, various things about Luther's own doctrine would change, which is why you have to be careful whenever a person says, well, Luther believed this. Well, he might have believed it at that point in time, but you have to look and see, did his doctrine change as he continued? Because he labored and and struggled over the things that were written in the scriptures. Luther was a tortured soul. And one of the struggles that he had was this section that we're reading here in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. We actually see all five solas of the Protestant Reformation in this particular section. Verse 21, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Sola Scriptura. The scriptures of God bear witness to the testimony of God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Their sola gratia, by grace alone, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, their solus Christus, in Christ alone, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And there's what we're talking about today, sola fide, 
by faith alone. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And there is soli deo gloria. The glory belongs to God alone. Just, he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. This, this passage was the one that, that just tore up Luther's soul. In fact, the things that he struggled over the most came from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is where we have the, the thesis statement of the book of Romans, where Paul is basically unfolding a doctrine of justification. That's what he's talking about over the course of Romans. We studied this a year ago. So in Romans 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's the thesis statement. Everything else that comes in the book of Romans basically unpacks that verse, Romans 1.16. But then there is this verse here in 17, and this one Luther just hated. He hated this verse. For in it, in the gospel... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why did Luther hate this verse? Well, it's because of the way that he interpreted the righteousness of God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. How did Luther interpret that? He thought the righteousness of God was the wrath of God. Because look at verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So he was using that verse to interpret what the righteousness of God was. The righteousness of God is his wrath. And Luther could not be in love with that idea. Because if the wrath of God is revealed from faith and for faith then God is just this, this tyrant guy in heaven with, like a kid with a magnifying glass who's burning ants on an anthill. Is, is, is this the righteousness? This is what we should be aspiring toward? This is what we have faith for, to believe that God is wrathful? So this was Luther's struggle. It was also his fear. It terrified him. This is what caused him to bargain with God. God, if you'll spare my life, I'll become a monk. This happened long before uh, 1517. He was, he was on a road on his horse. Lightning struck a tree next to him. He thought that because of his sins, because of his sins before God, God was going to strike him dead, was going to kill him. So he begged God, if you'll spare my life, I'll become a monk. So he, de he dedicated his entire life to living in a monastery and reading the scriptures. And it was there laboring over these, these scriptures that he came to passages just like this that tormented his soul. But Luther began to read in the Old Testament. He says, if there's anywhere we're going to find the wrath of God, it's in the Old Testament, right? And Luther's Greek was a little bit better than his Hebrew. And so he chose to read the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. 
And he was in Exodus chapter 25. Turn with me there to Exodus 25. Second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 25. And this is where, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, which happened in chapter 20, Moses has gone up on the mountain with God, and God is now giving him instructions about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be the place where God is going to dwell with his people. That's what the word tabernacle means. God dwelling with his people. He tabernacles with his people. And God has even given the arrangements for how the entire camp is to be set up. He is even specifying the furniture that is supposed to be in the tabernacle. So this is not anything that was decided by men, but God has decided how men are to honor God. And God will dwell with his people in this place that he has set up by the dimensions that he has ordained this tabernacle is to be built. The entire camp of the Israelites is going to be all around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is at the center of the camp. And then a little bit off center there in the middle of the tabernacle is the uh, the Holy of Holies. And then at the center of that is the Ark of the Covenant. And then at the center of that is where God is going to be. So God is at the center of the center of the center of the center. He is in the middle. Everything revolves around God. And so here's the instructions that God is giving to Moses as to how the center of the center of the center of the center is to be constructed. This is the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, starting in verse 17, God says this, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. And a cubit, by the way, is the length of a a man's forearm. So there would be a cubit uh, that that would have, you would have one guy in the camp, and it would be his forearm that would kind of be the unit of measurement for everybody. So then they would section off a rod according to that man's forearm, and then everybody else had to cut their rods according to that rod, so all cubits were exactly the same length. But that was basically the length of a cubit. So in this case, the cubit may have been the length of Moses' arm, from the tip of his middle finger to the tip of his elbow. So God says that here on this ark, on the ark of the covenant that I am telling you to make, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end, which is the image of an angel. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. So this is one solid piece of gold that has been constructed. It doesn't have any joints, doesn't have any seams. It's all just one seamless piece. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat in a prostrate position shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, which was the Ten Commandments. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So what's something, what, what's, what's a pair of words that we've seen over and over again in this passage, verses 17 through 22? We have seen the words mercy seat appear over and over again. Now in the Hebrew, mercy seat is kippur et. And, and one of those words you might recognize, kippur like Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that one day a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, uh, atoning for the sins of all the people of Israel. That was what happened on Yom Kippur. And it was a huge festive occasion. All of the people of Israel gathered there to watch the high priest do this. And it had to be done right. And if he didn't do it right then the people's sins weren't atoned for. So it was a big deal. Yom Kippur was a big deal. So that word Kippur literally means atonement. So this word Yom, or, or I'm sorry, Kippur et, as it appears for mercy seat, the literal translation of that would be atonement place. So the mercy seat right there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant And surely you picture the Ark of the Covenant, right? You picture it like you saw it in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. That's actually a pretty accurate depiction. That's what it likely looked like. And so it it was there on the top where the, the angels were bowed prostrate in the middle and their wings are kind of pointed inward. And it was there right in the center, right between the wings, right between the angels bowed to the middle. That was where God was. He was right there. And the... The Testament accounts for us that Moses would go into that place and he would talk with God. Exodus records that he would speak with God as one man speaks to another face to face. Would be there before the Ark of the Covenant just talking with God. The voice of God would come from that middle place right there at the top of the Ark of the Covenant. This was the mercy seat, Kippur Et, the atonement place. Well, like I said, Luther read this passage in the Greek. And so the Greek word for mercy seat is different than the Hebrew word for mercy seat. There's always something that's kind of lost in translation, right? Or or just translated a slightly different way. So mercy seat in the Greek is a different word. It's the Greek word hilasterion. Hilasterion in, in, in Exodus chapter 25 for mercy seat is the same word we're reading in Romans chapter 3 for propitiation. It is the atonement place. It is the place where our sins are forgiven, where God meets us. And what is that place? What is the atonement place? It's Christ on the cross for our sins. And when Luther read this, he exploded. His heart burst open, and he felt like he had been saved for the first time. Like like he had not experienced salvation until he made this connection between Exodus 25 and Romans chapter 3. That the way that he was interpreting that passage in Romans 1.17 was incorrect. The righteousness of God is not... The wrath of God, now the wrath of God is indeed righteous, 
But the righteousness of God is not his wrath. The righteousness of God is love and grace and holiness poured out to us through Jesus Christ. So when he read again, Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. He knows that he is saved because he believes. He believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Not the wrathful shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. And so once again, Romans 3, verse 21, and now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Remember, we read previously in chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So here we have revealed, spoken a different way. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's been manifested how? It's been manifested in Christ Jesus. Manifested. God becoming man and dwelling with us. The righteousness of God manifested apart from the law. The law which brings condemnation. The law which brings conviction for sin. The law that Luther struggled to to keep and couldn't. And felt himself laboring and burdened and couldn't get there. And felt like the wrath of God was just permanently on him and there was nothing he would be able to do. But then his salvation was reading that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You read about this righteousness even in the Old Testament, which Luther did as he was reading the description of the mercy seat in Exodus 25. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God for all who believe in Jesus. And after this realization, Luther wrote the following. I began to understand that in this verse, speaking about Romans 1.17, the justice of God is that by which the person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. So Luther, realizing that faith itself is even a gift of, of God, He says, I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice. In other words, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. In another place, Luther wrote this, If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger, 
nor ungraciousness. He who sees God is angry does not see him rightly, but looks on a curtain as if a dark cloud has been drawn across his face. And so it is by faith that we see the face of God in the glory of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews even says that very thing. We receive the righteousness of God by faith, which is itself a gift from God, and the just shall live by faith. So when we talk about this as being an essential truth of the Christian faith, basically what we're talking about here is justification by faith. We are justified before God, forgiven our sins by faith in Jesus Christ. So what is faith? What are we talking about? Pretty important word here. We're saved by faith. So it's important to know what faith is. If we're going to be saved by it, we should know what faith is. What is faith? Last year, when we were, uh, last year, last week, when we were talking about grace, I, you know, and I got to tell you, the, the stuff that I've been going over uh, in, the, in the course of a week while we've been in this series is bombarding. Uh, I, I've been preparing for this series for a year. Because I told you a year ago in October that we were going to be doing this in October of 2017. So I've been preparing for this for a year. This is a rabbit trail, by the way. I hope you're keeping up with me. But uh, so, uh, so then we get to it, and then in the week prior to the sermon, I'm, I'm like taking all the stuff that I've studied in a year and shooting myself in the face with it with a fire hose. You know, that's kind of what, kind of the way that I, I'm pulling all of this stuff together to talk about it, and I've got stuff that'll fill up a whole year's worth of sermons, but I have to condense it down into 45 minutes, which comes out to be an hour and 15 minutes. So, so, so this, it, it's, been, uh, it, it's been overwhelming over the course of the week to, to study all these kinds of things and try to pull all of this together and then make sense of it the way that it made sense to me over a course of a year study, and now I have to make it make sense to you. So last week, when and anyway, that was all to say, this feels like a year. Every week that goes by feels like a year that I'm pouring into this study. So that came out of my mouth that way. Anyway, now let's get back to this. Leave my rabbit trail. Let's get back on the straight path. All right. So last week, we defined grace as unmerited favor. That was our definition of grace. With faith, we're going to pull the biblical definition of faith... And I'm going to have everybody look at it together. It's just one verse, but let's look at it together. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Nope, I went too far. Hebrews 11, verse Now, before we read Hebrews 11.1, 1, look at the last part of verse 39 in the previous chapter. Hebrews 10.39. The writer of Hebrews says that we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So it is by faith that our soul is preserved. It is by faith that we've been saved from the wrath of God. It is by faith that we've received the righteousness of God. And so we stand before him as stand before him is justified. We are preserved. We are not going to be destroyed. We are those who will be preserved. Verse 39 again, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So now the writer of Hebrews gives us the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's your definition of faith. It is an assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And remember when we were going through Hebrews, Paul said this about hope, that who hopes for what he sees? If someone sees what they hope for, then it isn't hope. So the hope that we have is in something that we don't see, and we are convicted even by those things that we do not see. So we are so convinced of the thing that we don't see that we are convicted to obey it. And that's faith. So it is not merely saying, I believe. But the evidence of your faith is that you obey what you believe. You follow me? So Jesus said to us, said to his disciples in John 14, 15, if memory serves. It's either John 14, 15 or it's 15, 14, but it's one of those. Jesus said to his disciples, you show me that you love me because you obey my commandments. So if the person says, I love God, that's what they believe. I believe in a God whom I cannot see. As Hebrews 11 even goes on to say, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That takes faith. It takes faith for you to believe that God created all things out of nothing. That God who cannot be seen is even there. And in Hebrews chapter, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, if we were to go back, or Romans 1, I'm sorry, Romans 1, if we were to go back and read the verses prior to where we are in our passage in Romans right now, we would see that it says that God has made himself known through all things that have been made. You can look at creation, you can say, this came from somewhere. The atheist is wrong who says nothing plus nothing equals everything. That's absurd. Somebody made this. It was created. And it even goes on to say in Romans 1, 20, that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in all that has been made. So you don't just know God exists. You know that he is eternal and he is divine in all that has been made. All that is caused was caused by something uncaused. And that is God, who is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, who has no beginning and no end. He is whom all things were created by. And it is by faith that we believe that. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we're not only believing in something that happened, we're believing in something that is going to happen. God is promising us eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's by faith we believe that, even though we can't see it. Who has seen heaven? Have you? If you have, guess what? You can sign a book deal and write a best-selling book about it. Don't do that, by the way. None of those people who have written these books and have claimed to have seen heaven have seen heaven. None of them have. As Jesus says in John 3, that no one has seen God, but he who has descended from God, the Son of Man. Only Christ has seen heaven and has told us about what it is that he has seen, what it is that is there. The revelation that is even given to somebody like Isaiah or Ezekiel or John, these revelations come from Christ. 
I don't know if you notice when you open the book of Revelation, you begin reading, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of John. The revelation of Christ, which was given to his servants, that we might know the things that are about to take place. This is the, uh, the book that we've been going through with our high school students on Wednesday evening, the book of Revelation. So we hope for something that is coming, not just something that has happened, but something that is on the way. Faith is an assurance of things that are hoped for, a future hope, a future reality, and is a conviction of the things not seen. So certain are we of that reality that we are convicted to obey the words that have been commanded of those who will receive that reality. Jesus commanded that his kingdom people should live this way. And so therefore, by faith, we live that way. Jesus says, if you are justified, you must live as though you are justified. If you have received grace, you must live as though you have received that grace. Romans chapter 6, Paul says that if you're still walking in your sin and you're trying to say, oh, well, the grace of God covers me. It's just more grace. You can show more and more grace of God. The more and more I sin, the more and more God's grace pours out on me. And Paul says, no, by no means. If a person is still walking in sin in that way, they're still enslaved to their sin. They've not actually been set free by the grace of God. This is what Bonhoeffer uh, uh, termed to be cheap grace. I can just sin, I'll just ask God forgiveness, and then he'll give me forgiveness. If that's the way you're living your life, you don't actually have the grace of God. You're still enslaved to your sin. But if you have the grace of God, you will show it in the way that you live, that you are under his grace, and you will even show that grace to other people. My wife and I were watching a show last night, and uh, in this show, uh, there were two ladies. One was an older lady and one was a younger lady, and the older lady was pretty crabby, pretty grouchy person. Uh, made fun of people. She was a gossip. She lashed out at people that she didn't agree with. But the younger lady saw that the older lady was in need and gave of herself to make sure that the older lady was cared for. And there was at one point where the younger lady did something that the older lady did not agree with. And so all the kindness and the friendship that was being shared between them kind of came to a head and the older lady blew up. And she said, you know, when it comes down to it, I know that you actually think of me this way and I think of you this way. So why don't we just go our separate ways and stop pretending with one another? And that would have been a, a good place in the story for the younger woman to go, you know what? I don't need this. I've been doing everything nice for you and you show no, nothing but this kind of behavior, I'm gone. But instead, the younger lady just kind of laughed. It was like, I know you're that way, and I'm here anyway, and because I know that you need help. And so she continued to serve the older lady, even though this older lady was just crabby and grouchy with her all the time. And as I was watching that show, this was the night before, when I probably should have been downstairs preparing my sermon, but I wanted to spend time with my wife, and this was the show that we watched. And yet it was, it was there in that episode, I saw that exchange between those women, and I thought, that, that right there, that's grace when you would have been completely justified to say, I'm not going to listen to this, and then walk away from a person who treated you so unkindly. But instead, the younger woman showed more grace to the older woman, gave her more kindness, gave her more love and affection because she knew that she needed it. And that is God's display of grace toward us. 
when we have given God any and every reason to just destroy us. And yet he's shown us grace. And he loves us because we need it. We can't attain this grace. We cannot attain this favor from God any other way but that he gives it to us through his son. And we receive it by faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. So when, as we're going through these solas, you know, we say by scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. Some of you at some point have probably gone, why are there five alones? If we're saved by scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, it's not really alone. There are other things there. But you, you got you to gotta see that each one of these things has a different application or there's a different action verb that, that is attached to it. It is by scripture alone that we even know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we even know the commands of God that we're supposed to obey. That comes only through the word of God. It's not dictated to us by the church. It's not dictated to us by the Pope. We read it right here in God's word. By Scripture alone. That is our authority. Scripture alone is our authority, the Word of God. Next one is by grace alone. Will you receive salvation by grace? It's not in any other way. And somebody might go, well, what about love? Well, it is in God's love that he gives you his grace. God's love, his grace, his affection toward it. It's all wrapped up in that word, grace. The mechanism by which we receive that grace is faith. And that's also a gift of God. And it is only by faith that we receive that grace by which only we are saved. Now, oftentimes, the criticisms that come against the five solas of the Reformation, if you'll listen to those criticisms, you might notice that the criticisms are, are wording the, uh, the solas a different way. It's not by grace alone that they are criticizing. It's grace only that they are criticizing. Well, that's not our argument. The argument of the church that stands upon the truth of Jesus' word is not arguing that grace only are we saved. If you were saved only by grace, you don't need faith because God just pours out his grace upon you whether you're aware of it or not. And then, well, I don't need to believe in anything. I don't need to do anything. Nothing in my life needs to transform. I've just been given God's grace. Why do I even need to share that with anybody if you're saved by grace only? We're not saved by grace only. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, the object of our faith, to the glory of God alone. All the credit goes only to him. So that's what we mean when we say, by scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. It's not faith only, but it is by faith that we are given the grace of God and it is by faith that we obey the commands of God. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if we are convicted by the word of God to obey the word of God, then guess what? Obedience will be seen in our lives. The person who says, I believe, but does not obey, does not know God. John mentions that in 1 John. Perhaps the most famous passage that goes with this is in James chapter 2. So turn with me to James 2. We'll go back one book, oh, I'm sorry, to the right one book, <laughs> James chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 14, James 2, 14.
James 2.14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh Uh-oh. And this is the one that the critics love to use too. James 2.17 blows up justification by faith alone. You cannot believe that because James just said, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, we're not arguing it is by faith only that you are saved. It is by faith alone that you are saved. Because otherwise, this, James 2.17, contradicts what Paul has just said in Romans 3.20, that it is not by works of the law that a person is justified, but by faith alone. So did Paul and James just need to get together and get their ducks in a row? Paul and James knew each other. We see them meeting twice in the book of Acts. James is not saying anything that contradicts Paul. In fact, what James is talking about here is sanctification, not justification. We are being sanctified, and we are told in Romans 8 that those whom God has justified, he also sanctifies. So if you have been justified, God is growing you in that holiness. He's not left you converted and then walked away from you. He is also growing you in discipleship. You are growing in the knowledge and understanding of God and in his holiness and in his righteousness. So the moment you came to Christ and you believed by faith, you were immediately justified, but you were not yet fully sanctified. This growth in holiness is what needs to happen next in the life of a Christian. And that's what James is arguing about here. If you say that you're a Christian, show me your works. Not that you're saved by those works, but the evidence of your salvation will be seen in those works. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So this, again, says to us that that mere belief in God or faith only is not what saves us. Because even the demons believe by faith only, right? But they don't have grace. They do not worship Christ. They do not give glory to God. They pervert the word of God. So the demons aren't saved. They have faith only, but it doesn't give them salvation. Even the demons believe and shudder. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Then you've got Paul in Romans 4 saying Abraham was justified not by works, but by faith. So then you're going, ah, ah, confusing! But there's two different contexts that are going on here. That's why context is so important. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same passage that Paul quotes in Romans 4. So that was James 2.23. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Likewise, you also are friends of God who have faith in Jesus Christ. 
In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now, if you, if you still have trouble connecting Romans 3 and 4 with James, with James 2, maybe 2 Peter 1 will help you out. Let's go there next. So two books over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1 in verse 3 is where I'm going to begin. Second Peter 1, 3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What does that mean? By faith alone you are saved. That's what that means. Because of the knowledge of God, you have become partakers of the divine nature. That's what Peter has said. So because you have heard about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it, therefore, you you have received the divine nature of God. So then, Peter goes on in verse 5, For this very reason, because you're saved by by grace through faith alone, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. Now, what what does supplement mean? It means that your faith is growing into this. So you came to Christ by faith, but your faith is turning into other things. Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. Verse 6, knowledge with self-control. As you learn about God, you become self-controlled in your body. You learn about his holiness, you see your sinfulness, and need to control your fleshly desires and submit yourself fully to Christ. Self-control with steadfastness. The more you suffer in your own flesh and give yourself to Christ, the more solid you are in your faith. Steadfastness with godliness. as holiness, right living, Christ-likeness. Godliness with brotherly affection. So as God has showed love to us through his son Christ, and we have brotherly affection through our elder brother Christ, as he's described in the book of Hebrews, therefore we have this brotherly affection we should have with one another. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed of his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That is faith seen by our works. A person who does not have works that verifies their faith has a dead faith, which means they have no faith. So yes, we've been saved by faith. We are justified by faith. But that means that your faith 
will manifest itself into these things, these qualities of God that we have been given by faith in Christ. John said in 1 John 2 that if we love God, we're going to live like God. We're going to live like Christ. And that is the faith in Christ that we have. So as I bring this to a close, we're a couple of minutes past noon here. So as I, as I wrap these things up, like I said, all this stuff kind of is, is a fire hose right in your face. So how can I summarize these things for you a little bit more effectively? Well, as I said last week and as stated again for you today, even the faith that we've been given doesn't come from us. So you might think, well, if I'm not saved by works, but I have faith, isn't faith something that I do? No, as Luther pointed out, and as we looked at in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 last week, even faith itself is a gift from God. By grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is given to you by God. You believe because the Holy Spirit has made you to believe. And Jesus said this. If you need other words in another way to solidify the point, John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is that you have faith. And Paul said this to the Thessalonians. We've been re- uh, listening to the podcast, First and Second Thessalonians, what I've been teaching through recently. First Thessalonians 2.13, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That is faith. What do we need to believe to know that the faith that we have is real faith, is genuine faith in the true word of Christ our Savior? First of all, you must believe that Jesus Christ is God. If you do not know that Jesus Christ is God, you believe in a different Jesus. And that different Jesus means that he's given you a different atonement. And if it is a different atonement, then it's not the atonement that saves you from your sins. So you must know the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is God. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah is God. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So you must believe that Jesus is God. Secondly, you must believe that Jesus Christ came to us in the flesh that God came to us in human flesh and dwelt among us. Again from 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So two things we have been looking at so far that you must believe by faith And already John has said in both of those things, if you deny or believe the opposite, then you're an antichrist. So pretty important to believe that Jesus is God and Jesus as God came to us in the flesh. He became fully man and fully God. Let me summarize the remaining points this way. You believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. You believe that he died on the cross for our sins as the perfect spotless lamb of God. 
you believe that he was buried in a tomb, that he rose again on the third day, that he was seen and testified about by many, and that he ascended into heaven where he is interceding for us at the right hand of God and that he is coming back again. That, is, that should be the definition of your faith. Paul summarizes it this way, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. That's the gospel that we have believed. Another 3.16 passage that you are so familiar with, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And whoever believes in him, whoever has faith, will not perish but will have everlasting life. That is the faith that saves. And it is by this belief that we have received entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. What do you have to do to receive it? Just believe. Now on this next page that I have printed off from my notes, this page, this, this was my whole sermon right there. This next page that I have printed off is canons and catechisms from the Roman Catholic Church, many of them, that deny justification by faith alone. I'm only going to read you one because I'm out of time. But from the Council of Trent, which was assembled in Trento, Italy in 1545 and 1563, this was basically the Counter-Reformation. This was the assembly of the Roman Catholic Church that affirmed all of the charges that the Protestants were making against Roman Catholicism, which was contrary to what is stated in the Word of God. So let me read you one. Canon 9 from the Council of Trent. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. In other words, if you, if you believe justification by faith alone, you are damned. And in case you don't believe that's what that means, Canon 33, this council declares that if anyone disagrees with it, they are damned disagrees with the Roman Catholic Church, in other words. I won't keep going on with those. When I bring this up, when I bring up the canons that are believed by Roman Catholicism or the catechism or any of these other things, understand that I'm not just standing up here to bash Roman Catholicism. That's not what I'm here for. But to show you that there are many false teachings in the world. And there are false teachings that the majority will believe, even those who claim to be the church. But our authority is not in the church. Our authority is in the Word of God. And it is the Word of God that tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. The other reason I bring this up also is so that you would recognize where we came from as a church, why we call ourselves a Protestant church. Like I said, a friend of mine, Nate Pickowitz, up in New Hampshire, wrote a book called Why We're Protestant. So we read the history to find out why it's, it's even necessary to call ourselves a Protestant church. What is it we're protesting exactly? We're protesting against false teaching, the perversion of the Word of God that goes against 
the, the soundness of faith that we have been given through Christ's prophets and apostles. But lastly, I also tell you these things so that you would know that those who believe anything that is contrary to what we're reading here in the Word of God, they are not saved, and they need the gospel. If you have Catholic friends, you might even have Catholic friends who would nod with you in agreement of all the things that you're saying, but maybe they don't actually know what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And so I would hope that as they study Roman Catholic catechism and look at the Word of God, they realize these two things don't line up. I can't stay here because this church is a perversion of God's Word. And so this, it is by this Word that we test all other words. It is by this word that we lead the lost into saving faith in Christ. Because once again, a passage that I opened up with, out of Romans 10, 17, faith comes to us how? By hearing, and by hearing the word of Christ.